be finding a Bible and turn to the first chapter of James. First chapter of James. We're continuing a study of James through a series that we've entitled Faith That Works. Faith That Works. In many ways, James is one of the most practical books in the New Testament. It's got 108 verses, 59 direct commands. It's led many people to believe that it's a legalistic book, that it's anti-grace. But remember, James is no way a legalist. Remember our verse in 4-6 where James reminds us that God gives more grace. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. James is very much a grace-oriented believer. But in order to understand James, you got to get your mind kind of wrapped around a couple of ideas. First, I want you to consider for a minute James the man, the man himself. He's the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up under the very same roof with Christ Jesus himself. Consider that. Consider it. The scary part of James being it the half-brother of Jesus, is that James was exposed to Christ his entire life. He was exposed to Christ his whole life. He was exposed to all the teachings of Judaism, and he missed him. He missed him. He lived in unbelief. He missed Christ. And it reminds me that we can grow up in church, we can be familiar with all the things, we can know the scriptures, we can know the order of the books, we can know John 3.16, we can know the structure and form of church, we can know all of this stuff and we can miss Christ. We can miss him. And I want us to be warned today that we need to examine our hearts very carefully in the light of teaching, in the light of what it is that we're looking at, and to remember that it's possible to miss him. It's possible to miss him. James understood what it was to be deceived. He knew what it was to deceive himself. And I want us to be aware that it's possible to be deceived. Second, you have to get clear in your mind that James was through and through, head to toe, a Jew. He was a Jew. He came to faith in Christ Jesus. He became what we would call a completed Jew. He was a Jew. Through and through. He never left behind his teaching in the Torah. He never left behind the, the, uh, the, the compelling nature of the law. He never left that behind. He stayed a Jew. And he spoke to a Jewish audience. These people that he writes to are Jews. They're Jewish. Why does that matter? What's that such a big deal? Well, let's put it this way. We've all heard those dramatic testimonies, right? Like, uh, oh, I, I woke up one day in the gutter with a needle hanging out my arm, and, and uh, there were people passed out all around me. We'd had a heavy night of partying, but I finally figured out I didn't want this anymore, and so I came to Christ, and I was freed from all my trappings and addictions. And, and Christ changed their life dramatically. 
And that's all well and good, and that's, that's a, a dramatic testimony. But my testimony is nothing like that. And I bet you, for most of you in this room, your testimony is far more like mine than it was for one of these dramatic people. See, when I came to Christ, it's because I had been raised by Christian parents. I had been raised in the church. I knew all this stuff. I knew what it was to be in Sunday school. I knew what it was to be in church. I knew what the Christian life looked like. And so when I came to Christ, yes, things about me changed, but outwardly not that much changed in my life. I still outwardly was very much the same person I was before an inward trans, transaction took place or took place and these people these Jews that James is writing to they they were good Jews and so when they came to Christ when they accepted the message of grace not that much outwardly changed in their life they were very much in the same kind of mode of living that they were before they came to Christ. That's important to us. That's important to us because that, that gives us a, a way of relating to these people. See, we may be Bible Belt Christians. They were Jew Belt Christians. They knew what it was like to be a Jew. And James is going to hit these people and hit them and keep going after them with the word of God to knock them off kilter, to keep them from just staying a Jew Belt Christian. Now, what's wrong with just being a Jew Belt Christian? Well, he was afraid that they would just become complacent. Just become complacent. Not that much had to change. I can put on a good show. I can be a good Jew. I can look good. I can attend church. I know the things to do. I know the trappings of religion. I can just look the part. But James is going to give them just beaten after beating with command after command, impossible commands, things that they'll never be able to do on their own. And he's doing it like Jesus did when he spoke to those Jewish people as he was here on earth. He tells them things like, you're to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. <laughs> and we're all disqualified. He told him, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you're hopeless. And, and what Jesus did with that audience, his Jewish audience, James is mimicking in lots of ways. James reasons much like Jesus. He sounds more like Jesus than maybe any of the other writers. James and Jesus were half-brothers, and they became true brothers in faith. True brothers in faith. See, God didn't want good Jews. God doesn't want a good Bible Belt Christian. See, he doesn't want a person that just, you know, I don't dance, drink, cuss, or chew, or go with girls that do. He wants more in our life than that. And he calls us today through pages of scripture in books like James to not be a Bible Belt Christian. Go for more. This is a very important message for those of us who find ourselves in the Bible Belt in Odessa, Texas in 2018. Our big idea today is very simple. 
God uses the word to bring his followers to maturity. Jesus uses the word to bring his followers to maturity. We're going to read in chapter 1, starting in verse 19 to the end. Read with me. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Pray with me. Father, we see your word today. I pray that we look intently into your word. I pray you would plow up our hearts today. That we would be obedient to what it is that we see. That we would listen today. We'd be doers of the word Change us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at this passage today, we see three paragraphs. We're going to see three points. Three points. And then I'm going to be a good old Baptist preacher. I'm going to add a poem at the end, and we're going to be through. Three points in a poem. Three points in a poem. First, Jesus wants his followers to approach the word with humility. Now, you've got to think with me. Jesus wants us to approach his word with humility. Think, think. I first thought James was launching off in this discussion of our speech, but I don't think that's that's the case at all. James is not talking about our speech. Remember the original manuscripts, they didn't have punctuation, they didn't have paragraphs, they didn't have any of that stuff, and these have been added by our editors. I want you to think of it this way. Last week, we ended with verse 18. It serves as kind of a hook to this first paragraph, and I put them together, and I want you to read it on the screen with me. Read it as a continual thought this way. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He saved us, right? Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Look at this. He's got word. He's got word. He's talking about the word. And in the middle of that, sandwiched between those two phrases that he's talking about word, he has this curious statement about hearing, about speaking, and about anger. Here's the deal. James is quoting a Jewish proverb. 
a Jewish proverb. It's part of their wisdom literature. If you were a good Jew, you knew this thing. Front, back, upside down. You knew this proverb. This is part of a, 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 almost an exact quote from an intertestament wisdom literature piece. So between Malachi and the, the first part of the New Testament, there's this long period of uh, no word coming. But there was wisdom literature that was being produced. And this is one of the quotes from that wisdom literature. And so picture it. Picture it in your mind. James launches out into that, that wisdom literature. He says, okay, Know this, every person should be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And every Jewish head in that room starts nodding. Yeah, duh, we know that. We've heard that our whole lives. We know every part about that. Yeah, we get it, we get it. But James is doing this proverb about speech And he's going to tie it to the word. See, he's going to do what Paul does. Do you remember when when Paul says, uh, don't muzzle the ox while it treads the grain? And what he's talking about is we've got to provide for our leadership. We've got to provide for those who uh, bring us the word. And so Paul is using this, this commandment and he's applying it in a different way. That's exactly what James is doing. See, this speech that James is talking about is talking about a, a, a speech that's humble, that's self-controlled, that, that has in its mind and in, in, in its thinking that it doesn't just spout off, that it's, it's listening. That it's thinking before the mouth starts moving. And that's exactly the picture that James wants us to see as we approach the word. Think about this with me. Be quick to hear the word. Be slow to talk back to the word. Be slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Think about this with me. Be quick to hear the word. Be quick to hear it. Be slow to talk back to it. Don't start arguing with the word. Don't start, don't start just immediately responding to the word. Think about the word. Think about it. Think about it. Mull it over in your mind before you start responding to it. Don't try and wriggle out from what makes you uncomfortable. Be slow to anger. Slow to argue with the word. Don't become argumentative and resistant to the word before you've had even time to consider what it is it's saying to you. If you're a teacher, you get this. Do you ever try and teach an unteachable person? Even as you're explaining, and they're usually not that cute, even as you're explaining, that student is sitting there, they're just arguing back. No, 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 no. I saw it especially when I taught algebra. And, you know, you've got this train that comes from and it's traveling east and the other's traveling west. And one's going 30 miles an hour and another's 40 miles an hour. When will they meet? And they go, I got this. I can tell you all the steps. And you're like, no, 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 no. You've got to follow the steps. You've got to follow the process. You've got to, oh, no, no, no. I get this. Got this. It's under control. And they're, they're, demanding to do it their own way. And so when, when they start applying their demands to another problem, well, they're mad at you. Because 
you're, you're demanding that they, they take this process, and they don't want to do the process. They're resistant. They're unteachable. And James is saying, don't be an unteachable person. Don't be like that when it comes to the Word. Be open to hear it. If you make yourself unteachable, it won't produce the righteousness that God desires in your life. Keep going in this verse. As a result of the Word, as a result of what it is you're seeing, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. (laughs) And you know he's talking to Jews. He's talking to good Jews. Put away filthiness. And the rampant wickedness. In other words, as, as it begins to show you your sin, put it away. Take it off. Take it off. Put it away. Repent. Take off that filthy rag of a coat you've got on. And receive with meekness. Humility. Think about meekness for a minute. Jesus was meek. He was meek. That doesn't mean Jesus was weak. He was meek. He's like a a Clydesdale with a bridle in his mouth. And and that Clydesdale is of tremendous power. But he's under control. He's under control. He's meek. Receive with meekness, humility, and restraint the implanted word. In other words, the Spirit's going to drive the truth down deep into your soul. The Spirit will do this. And look, it says it's able to. To save. Now wait just a minute. It's able to save. We have up here that this word was implanted into your heart. In other words, you became a believer. And now it says it's going to save you. What's he talking about? This saving, this saving is sanctification. It's that process of being saved. For all of us, there was a point when we were saved. There is a point now that we walk that we are being saved. We are being changed into more and more the image of Christ Jesus. And there will become a place that we will be glorified and be like Christ. But this word works in this middle part of being saved. This sanctification process. Be open to the word. Be teachable. I want to show you another passage. 1 Peter 2.2. I think I put 2 Peter in your notes. It's 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2.2. Look on the screen. 1 Peter 2.2. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Let me talk to you. I'll be real honest with you folks. It is of great concern to me and really to all of this church leadership. We talk about it in elders a lot. About people that we come in contact who have been church members their whole life that are not in the Word of God. Not in the Word. It's too hard. I don't have time for it. I I really don't get anything from it. I really don't understand it. All manner of excuses. And so we, we somehow just excuse ourselves from being in the Word. And I want you to think about this verse for a minute. Like a newborn infant long for the spiritual milk of the Word. What if we took those babies down in that nursery and we gave them the amount of milk that you take of the Word? For some of you, sadly, that'd be one bottle a week on most Sundays. 
you go to Sunday school, maybe two bottles a week. And how would those babies do? They would be taken from you for failure to thrive and for child abuse. And it breaks our hearts as a church leadership as we look at people in our congregation who commit soul abuse week after week after week. And God has more than that for us. You have got to get in the Word on some kind of consistent basis. You've got to get in the Word. You have got to do it. If you have a problem with this, you've got to ask God, oh, beg Him for a hunger. Beg Him for a hunger. And you know what? This is one time you get to hear this command. If you have trouble with this, then for crying out loud, be a baby about it. Be a baby about it. What do I mean by that? You don't start a baby with a gallon of formula and two quarts of oats. You start a baby with three or four ounces. But you do it consistently. You do it consistently. And time goes by and more and more as that baby grows, they take in more and more. And they begin to have a hunger for it. And they take it in and they grow and they thrive. For crying out loud, be a baby about it if that's a hard thing for you. Take two or three verses consistently every single day. Make it a priority. Don't turn on Facebook. Don't open your phone. Don't look at the television. Don't pick up a magazine. Don't do anything till the Word of God has a chance to root in your life, even if it's a tiny little bit. God wants to work through the Word in your life. Make time in the Word a priority. Like Nike, just do it. Just do it. Just do it. we got to approach the word with humility. Second, Jesus wants his followers to obey the word. Obey the word. This idea comes from that little passage, 22 to 25, where he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. A hearer of the word would be like hearing the word preached, but by lunch you don't even remember what was said. You don't even remember the sermon. It's kind of like you, you just listen to it absently. It didn't make any difference in your life at all. Kind of like the parable of the soils. You remember? Jesus says the sower goes out and he's spreading seed all over the place. And some of it falls on rocky ground and the birds just eat it up. And some of it falls on some okay ground, but it's, it's too shallow. And when, when, the, when the sun comes up, it's not enough nourishment for it. And some falls and the thorns and the uh, weeds choke it all out. See, that's a hearer. It's here. It, it made no difference. Made no difference to him. See, G, James knew all about this. He says, if you just hear the word and you do nothing, you're deceiving yourself. He knew all about deceiving himself. He'd heard the word his whole life. He'd been to Sabbath school his whole life. And yet he was an unbeliever in Christ Jesus. It made no difference to him. And if you think he's all by himself, I want you to consider a couple of others. Judas. Judas was an apostle. 
You know, there's no reason to believe that when Christ sent out those apostles that Judas didn't uh, heal the sick and didn't cast out demons, just like the rest. And yet Judas was an unbeliever. Judas was an unbeliever. The scribes, the Pharisees, they knew that stuff up and down and backwards and forwards. Think of the scribes that were, were with Herod when, when the Magi came and they said, where's the baby supposed to be born? Where's this Messiah supposed to be born? And they go, um, Bethlehem. And they turn and they're like, we've seen the star. We've seen it. And the scribes don't even care. No care. See, the scribes didn't think they needed a savior. They didn't care. They didn't care. We can deceive ourselves. James knew what it was to deceive himself. And if we just look at this word and it makes no difference in our life, he's saying we're deceiving ourselves. He uses this uh, idea of the man in the mirror. Let me tell you a funny story. This guy gets ready, and he doesn't even, even know what he looks like. I taught school with this lady that had a friend, and um, she got up one morning. It was kind of a hectic morning, and, and she ran through her day, and she never even thought anything about her day. And, but she had to stop by the, the grocery store on her way home. So she goes to the clerk. She's putting out her groceries, you know. And the clerk's just chatting, absent-minded, mindedly with her and she goes um, you're a teacher right you know, she's checking those groceries and the lady's like well yeah I'm a teacher how'd you know oh I can always tell I can always tell you're an elementary teacher right she was like well yeah how'd you know that well you elementary types are easy to figure out because you know you're just so into your kids you know you're so into your kids. You're just you're willing to do whatever it takes to get them to learn. I mean, like you have uh, uh, obviously you're studying the American Indians, and you, you're not even uh, afraid to go out looking like an American Indian. And the ladies, okay. And she couldn't figure out what in the world she was talking about. And so she gathers up her groceries and she runs to the car and she looks into the mirror. See, when she was finishing her makeup that day. The phone rang, and she never went back to, <laughs> to the mirror. And so she put on, what is it, ladies, the pink stuff, the rouge or whatever. She put two little stripes of rouge, in, and she meant to go back and rub it in. But she went all day with two stripes of rouge across her face. And no one said a word to her. And think, she had driven herself to school. She had to have looked in the rearview mirror. She had to have gone to the bathroom sometime in the day. Of course, with a teacher, I mean, you've got to go. Get and go. But she never paid attention to her appearance again. And so she went to the, the whole day with her appearance unchanged, unaware of what it was she looked, looked like. When we approach the Word of God that way, James says we're deceived. But he goes on to say the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, in other words, like you're a little kid, you see a bug and you plop down on the ground and you examine that bug with all the care and, and wonder and amazement. That's the kind of person the word makes a difference to. When you look into the perfect law, literally, when you take time to stoop over and look, 
change happens. What is the perfect law? What is the law of liberty that, uh, that James is talking about? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. When you take time to look into the gospel and into the perfect fulfillment of the law, Jesus Christ himself, and you persevere at it, you're doing what God wants. Persevere. You keep at it. You savor it. You memorize it. You meditate on it. Meditation. What's that mean? Okay. You've you got to get in your, pic, uh, your mind this picture of these people. They're agrarian people. They understand the farm. They understand the idea of a good chewing animal. Okay, so let's. You got a milk cow. A milk cow goes out and she takes in, vacuums in all kinds of grass, and then in the heat of the day, she'll go find herself a tree to lay under, in the shade, and she'll she'll take some of that grass that she's just inhaled, and she'll burp it up, and she'll chew on it. She just chews on it. She just chews on it. That's meditation. You take the word that you have ingested and you chew on it. You chew on it. I'll do an example for you. Simple little little, uh, verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. What's that mean? Jesus wept. The God of heaven wept. Why would the God of creation cry? And it's at the tomb of Lazarus. And he sees all the crowd around him mourning. Why would he cry? Because he's sad he died? No. Jesus knew that Lazarus was more alive at that moment than he had ever been his whole life. He was not sad for Lazarus. He was sad for what's going on around him. And I think that was an epiphanal moment for Jesus Christ. Because he he was setting his face toward the cross. And he weeps. He weeps. You see, these people need a Savior. And I'm the only one there is. And if I don't die for these people, then their life will stay like this. That's meditation. That's taking that simple little thing and just chewing on it and thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. Meditate. And in your meditation, you become a doer who acts. You savor the word and it drives you to action. It drives you to change. I want you to listen to a little quote I found from John Piper as he describes this kind of savoring of the word. John's a great guy. You need to read him. The scripture day after day reveals to us the greatness and the beauty and the power and the wisdom and the mercy of all that God is for us in Christ so that by the power of the Spirit we find our joy in him. The Bible gives us many specifics as pointers how to live, like James's 59 little commands. Gives us lots of pointers how to live. But most deeply, the way the Bible equips us is by changing what we find satisfaction in so that our obedience comes from within freely. 
It does this when we read it and meditate and memorize and meditate every day, every day. I want you to think about something. How can this process happen in your life if you're not in the Word of God? How can the Spirit use the Word to bring about this sanctification in your life if you're not in the Word of God? Paul would describe it as quenching the Spirit. If you're not in the Word, if the Word is too hard for you, if you just can't find time for it, you're quenching the Spirit of God. Those are hard words, people. But I want you to understand the heart of the one preaching to you today. It is for your good. It is for your good. And whether by guilt or by whatever it takes, you get in the Word of God. Get in it. Don't quench the Spirit in your life. But James says if we are in the Word, you'll be blessed in your doing. You're blessed in two ways. One, if you start living by the principles in the Word of God, your life just gets better anyway. That's why you can be an unbeliever and you start going to church and your life can improve, whether, whether you believe or not, just by doing some of the things that the Scripture says. Uh, the, the commandment to marriage and staying uh, pure with your wife, that brings all kinds of blessings to your life. It brings blessings to your family just by doing the word and following the principles in the word, it will bring your life into better harmony anyway. But he blesses you in a different way too because God will bless such savoring and acting with more and more revelation of himself. More and more revelation of yourself. You get more of Christ. You get more of Christ. Okay. We're to come to the word with humility and we're to obey the word. And lastly, Jesus wants his followers to bear fruit. Bear fruit. If we come to the word with a teachable spirit, if we dig in, if we savor, if we memorize, if we meditate, then the spirit will use that to change us internally. And that leads to some external evidences. And the first one James mentions is our speech. Why in the world would he mention speech? He says this, if anyone thinks he's religious, what's religious? Let's change that to godly. Let's change that to godliness. A person who, th- who thinks his life is godly, characterized by godlike behavior. If you think you're godly, if you think you're religious, but you don't bridle your tongue, you're deceiving your heart, your godliness, your religion is worthless. <laughs> James immediately turns to our speech. Oh my, why would he do such a thing? Because no other activity shows what's in the heart more clearly than what comes out of our mouth. I don't like this one. I really don't like this one. What comes out of our mouth is what most directly reflects what's going in in our heart. Think of it this way. Speech is a fruit of the heart. Speech is a fruit of the heart. If you think you're godly and your mouth is corrupt, James says you're deceiving yourself in the whole process. Think with me. Isaiah 6. Remember Isaiah 6? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord and he was high and lifted up. It was this magnificent vision of the Lord. And Isaiah sees the Lord and he looks at all that's happening and he becomes struck with terror. And how does he react to it? He says, oh, oh, woe is me. 
because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell with a people of unclean lips. Is he saying he's got a cussing problem? Is he saying he uses vulgar words? He's coarse? He tells dirty jokes? No. He's saying, you know what? I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And it's evident by what I say. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Oh, how we ought to watch our mouth. Isaiah knew he had a heart problem, and he lived around people that had heart problems. And when he saw the Lord, he was immediately convicted of his sin. And I want you to think about it. Who provided the solution for Isaiah? The same one that will provide the solution for us. What happened? He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And the the angel of the Lord went over and brought a hot coal and touched to his lips. And he forgave him of his sin. And he set his heart aright. And that's what God will do for us. It will come as a result of the Spirit's working in our life. There's much we can do to help. Jesus is the ultimate answer. There's a lot we can do to help, like, uh, you know, not talking. That'd be a great start for a lot of us. But ultimately, our mouths represent a sin, a heart problem. And we're woefully inadequate to fix it. That's why we need to press into the gospel. We've got to savor Christ. We've got to meditate. And we'll begin to see real change coming from our speech because we talk about what it is we love. The first evidence is our speech. The second is going to be in our compassion for those among us who uh, Jesus would describe as the least among us. In James's day, he calls them widows and orphans. Look, he says... Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their their affliction. Why would he choose these people? They were the most marginalized people on the planet. They were completely helpless and destitute. You had to have a man provide for you. You lose your husband, you don't get a secretarial job. Doing a little typing and computer input. There was no such thing. You're only recourse was to find another man, someone to uh, remarry or a kinsman redeemer like we saw in the story of Ruth with Boaz. People who were orphans, exactly the same kind of thing. Destitute, destitute. In our day, the list would have to include the unborn, the physically, mentally handicapped, the elderly, the sick, those that, that really, as a society, we don't want to deal with too much. See, real godliness, he says, will be not only about compassion on, and action on behalf of such marginalized people, but it will certainly include it. That won't be all that godliness looks like, but it will be part of it. The fruit that we bear as we are in the Word and as the Spirit is working in our life and as we become more and more sanctified and we become more and more like Jesus, we're going to see some evidence in our speech. We're going to see some evidence in the people that we care about. And lastly, we're going to see that we're going to keep ourselves unstained from the world. Keep oneself unstained from the world. 
See, this is not a withdrawal from the world or just moral purity that he's thinking about. This is a wholesale guarding of the heart and mind from taking on the world's views. Think of this for a minute. This is what you think about. This is who you are. This is how you perceive the world around you. You keep yourself unstained from this kind of stuff. You guard your heart from this kind of stuff. What it is you think about that's going to see itself out in the fruit that it bears. And James is saying, you guard your heart here. You guard your heart. Think Daniel with me. Think Daniel. Daniel was carted off to Babylon. Daniel was shown all the luxuries of Babylon. Daniel was was invited to partake of all the pagan revelry behind him. And the word says Daniel resolved not to be defiled. And it's going to take some resolution. It's going to take some resolution on the part of believers to not be defiled by this world. We must resolve not to be defiled in our body, in our mind. We would call those things values. Don't get your values from the world. Get your values from the Word of God. The fruit is your speech, your compassion for others, what it is you're meditating on, what it is you think about, how it is that you partake of this world. The filter that's in your mind. Keep yourself unstained. We have to be in the word with humility. With an eye toward obedience. And the spirit will use this to produce fruit in our life. Think with me for just a second. James was most likely the very first writer in the New Testament. Probably the oldest book in the New Testament. James didn't have the Gospels to fall back on as he thought. James didn't have the writings of Paul as he thought. James knew Jesus. James knew the Torah. James knew the Old Testament. And James applied the Old Testament in New Testament ways. He was a master at this. And and I I thought, what in the world? Where did he come up with this stuff? And the Spirit drew my attention to what it is that we talked about earlier. I purposely requested a certain passage of Scripture read this morning. Who remembers what that is? You can't answer, Lindy. What we read at Welcome of Guests? Anybody know? I'm afraid I might fail that test. Did we look into the Word together or did we just kind of pass it off? It's Psalm 19. It's Psalm 19. I want you to get your Bible out and turn to Psalm 19. I want you to think about something with me just for a minute. I'll be quick here. This is our poem that we're going to end with. But I'll be quick here. I want you to think about it. If God tells us something in Scripture, we ought to sit up and take notice. But when he tells us something in the Old and New Testaments, we ought to stand to our attention. 
And that's exactly what I want us to do today. I want you to take Psalm 19 and I want you to stand up. When you have Psalm 19, stand. Let's stand. Let's change our posture before Almighty God as we stand before the open word of God today. Let's change our posture. Let's feel its weight upon our lives. Let's consider for just a minute what it is that David did and what David said in this Old Testament years and years before. Testament in this dramatic psalm. He starts out, and I'd keep my finger right there because I'm going to move fast. He starts out, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, all of that pours forth speech. Over and over again, it pours forth speech. And Paul is going to apply that in Romans. And he's going to say, you know what? Because of the creation, all men are without excuse. What's to be known about God? You can know because the creation speaks of it. And then, look, verse 7. And David says, you know what? God not only spoke through his creation, but God spoke. He spoke. He spoke. And we have a record of what it is he speaks. And it's as if he takes this jewel and he begins to hold it up to the light. And he looks at every little facet of it. And he goes, the law is perfect. The testimony. Oh, the precepts of the Lord. The commandment. The fear of the Lord. The rules of the Lord. Look. He's going to savor them. They're perfect. They make wise the simple. They're right. They're pure. They're clean. They change me. There are great benefits to them. They enlighten the eyes. They make wise the simple. And look, he savors them. Verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. It's better than dessert after Sunday afternoon dinner. More to be desired are they. He's savoring it. He's savoring it. And look, he goes, ooh, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. James said, you'll be blessed in your doing. You'll be blessed in your doing. And then, verse 12, he, who can discern his errors? As he looks at God, he begins to see his own unrighteousness. And he begins to cry out to God. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Who is in charge of our sin problem? God himself. God himself. James says the same thing. I'll be blameless and innocent of great transgression. I'll taste grace. I'll taste grace. And fruit is born. And look what the fruit is. The words of my mouth. The meditation of my heart. When I come to the word of God and I savor it, it bears fruit. It bears fruit. Let's pray.